Well, unfortunately, high mortgage rates have brought uh, home sales to a halt, uh, particularly yeah. existing home sales. But when we look at mortgage application data and the share of applicants that are out of Metro, they remain mm. at the same rate that they were during the pandemic. So about a quarter of um, applicants in the Metro area are from out of Metro. Welcome back to Core Conversations, a CoreLogic podcast, where we tour the property market to investigate how economics, climate change, governmental policies, and technology affect everyday life. I am your host, May Claire Bolton-Smith, and I'm just as curious as you are about everything that happens in our industry. Welcome to Season 4. The pandemic may not be making daily headlines anymore, but we're still feeling its effects. One of the many ways in which it fundamentally altered the U.S. is the scale at which companies across the nation began to experiment with remote work. While not all jobs can be done from a remote setting, for those that were able to work from home, these new flexible working policies opened the pathway for migration out of big cities. Over the last several years, there have been reports of people leaving high-cost coastal metros for smaller, more affordable regions. But now the question is, how have these migration patterns redefined income distribution, as well as the patterns of gentrification and urban sprawl? And how have all of these changes affected home prices across the country? So to dive into this, we're welcoming back one of our favorite guests that we just had to finish off season three last year, our chief economist, Selma Hepp. Selma, welcome back to Core Conversations. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me back. Okay, so I feel like we just chatted because you were just here, but <laughs> I really wanted to continue the conversation with you because I want to talk about migration patterns and how we're seeing things. So I think, can we just start by talking about when we say pandemic migration, what do we mean by that term, pandemic migration? Before we jump into talking about migration patterns and what that means for the overall U.S. housing economy, I wanted to remind our listeners that we want to help you keep pace with the property market. To make it easy, we curate the latest insights and analysis for you on our social media where you can find us using the handle at CoreLogic on Facebook and LinkedIn or at CoreLogic Inc. on X, formerly known as Twitter and Instagram. But now let's get back to Mayclair and Selma. So during the pandemic, we saw an increased share of population across U.S. moving to other parts of the country. So, you know, people that that couldn't necessarily afford in one metro area would move to another area that was more affordable or people mm -hmm. that just felt that rents in a certain area are beyond what they wanted to spend on a monthly basis, they ended up moving. And all of this was enabled by rise of uh, remote work or hybrid work. Well, sure. at, at the time it was remote work because we all re went remote uh, for about a year to two years, it depends. But uh, it was really the remote work, rise of remote work that enabled a lot of people to keep their jobs, but then live in an area that was more um, approachable to them, more affordable or more mm -hmm. something that they preferred better. Well, you and I, Selma, are both part of this, that we yes, both, we are. At, at one point, <laughs> we thought we would be living in a different location and we both uh, did relocate um, during the pandemic because of remote work. So yeah, I think it, it's it's interesting that you and I are, are getting to have this conversation. So I know that there was a study by Fannie Mae in 2023 that found the rates of hybrid and remote work have remained stable throughout the pandemic. I think for a time, people thought, oh, it was just during the pandemic and everyone would go back to offices. But I think people really found that it worked and it was something that we then 
really saw to become this new kind of wave of remote and hybrid work. Uh, what do we think kind of, are there any long-term consequences from this type of work style? What, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, so one thing to keep in mind is, you know, this is all new to us, right? And so we're not sure how it's all going to yeah. unfold. But, but so far, what we are seeing is that people are very, very much in favor of the hybrid work. And I mm-hmm. um, saw so a presentation recently from LinkedIn that showed that jobs that are hybrid or, I mean, preferably remote, people actually apply, are more likely to apply for a job that's a remote than that it's hybrid. But then, by contrast, if it's in per, in-person versus hybrid, they apply, they're more likely to apply for a hybrid job. So people want okay. that flexibility, right? Yeah. And the other data show is that we really haven't gone back to the level of uh, office usage that we had uh, going into the pandemic. And so, you know, the, the cards that you swipe to get into the office, yeah. they're still at about 50% level of pre-pandemic. So, Interesting. you know, and this is now, what, three years going into fourth year now is so people are you know really appreciating this the linkedin study that selma is referencing is from june 2023 in the study which looked at cities with the largest number of applications for remote and hybrid work it is notable that the pandemic era migration hotspots like bend oregon and Asheville, north carolina made the top of the list for large metros where workers apply for remote positions Meanwhile, New York City, Urbana-Champaign, Illinois, and Boston were the top markets for hybrid jobs. A link to the study is in the show notes. And with that in mind, um, you know, it does have a consequence on um, distribution of cities, you know, meaning like what are the top cities for top paying jobs or, you know, cities that... Um, you know, offer opportunities for certain types of occupations, such as tech or, mm-hmm. um, you know, movies, for example, right? Yeah. So, so, so that is all being thrown into, you know, into disarray with, with rise of uh, uh, remote work. Um, and we are already seeing some of this play out in some of the large metro areas that were uh, like top uh, centers for um, tech work, like like the Bay Area, sure. right? Um, and so, uh, so, you know, so, so we're seeing, uh, you know, rising vacancy of commercial real estate. We're seeing, um, you know, less, uh, less spending, um, on ridership or on transit ridership because people are not going in to the city anymore. Mm -hmm. We're seeing now cities lose some of that tax base, uh, that they were counting on because people are moving elsewhere and, and you know, wow. paying taxes. So, you know, it does have long-term repercussions uh, uh, of, yeah. you know, ro- remote work does. So there, there's a lot there, Selma. So I want to <laughs> dig into a, into a few of those things there. So, okay, what about, I mean, you talked a lot about people aren't taking transit anymore. There's tax implications. What are we looking at, like economic implications of, people moving, especially, you know, some really high paying jobs in like major metros moving to the Midwest, moving to these, you know, more, I know Boise was a big one that there was an influx of people, like people just moving to these, what were traditionally more affordable metros. What has that done 
from an economic perspective, economic implications, really. Yeah, yeah. So when you think about how cities developed um, in, you know, we always had this model of monocentric city, meaning that, you know, all the employment activities was happening in one center, in usually downtown, and, mm-hmm. you know, proximity to those jobs uh, was costly. So you were paying high uh your cost of housing was higher because you had that ability or proximity to higher paying jobs. And so people were willing to pay higher uh, housing costs. And they were, you know, and and as as a result of that, as a result of a lot of higher income in population density, you would have, uh, you know, then generally more amenities like, like restaurants and concert halls and, you know, I don't know, yep. anything you can think fun to do, right? When you're not sure, working, yeah. that's that was all sort of concentrated. And what remote work is doing now is that it's enabling a lot of these high wage workers to keep the high wage, but move somewhere else. Um, yeah. And that has a repercussions for these large cities because now they're not the dominant cities for uh, attracting high age, high wage workers. But the, um, you know the way the the the, uh, the opportunities are sort of spread out wider, right? Yeah. And and so the so on one hand you have the existing city that now is losing that uh, tax base, but the on the other hand you have this new. Uh, cities that are becoming more attractive and they're attracting a lot of the high wage workers that are now getting a lot of uh, tax base. They are getting um, people with high wages that are spending locally on local services. So, you know, as a result of that now, you know, in light of the fact that we also have labor shortages across the country that could put pressure on local wages as well, because now you need more restaurant workers and our because of the shortage of them, they're going to ask higher wages. And so it becomes a uh, sort of um, a rollover of, of, of uh, higher costs of living from that big city to the smaller city. Uh, yeah. But because, you know, because people are coming in and, and demanding all these services and having money to spend. Now, the city, that new city also will have more to spend on, edu- you know, on local schools, on, sure. on yeah. um, you know, police and firefighters and things like that. So it just in some ways you end up uh, redistributing the income from one center to more centers. Before Salma and Mayn Claire continue the conversation about migration patterns in the U.S., it's that time again. Grab a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We're going to do the numbers in the housing market. Here's what you need to know. U.S. homeowners have seen their equity increase 6.8% or $1.1 trillion since the third quarter of 2022. At the same time, the total number of mortgage residential properties with negative equity decreased by 8%, leaving 1.1 million homes underwater on a mortgage. The share of homes with negative equity was primarily concentrated in Louisiana, Iowa, and Oklahoma. Also in the third quarter of 2023, the average U.S. homeowner gained approximately $20,000 in equity during the past year. California and Hawaii, as well as northeastern states such as Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Maine, posted about double the national gain in equity as home price growth continues. New York, Texas, Utah, and Washington, D.C. all saw equity losses. And that's the SIP. See you next time. Before we finish our episode, though, we wanted our listeners to know about an upcoming event in January where they can meet some of our experts, including May Claire, in person. 
I'm Garrett Gray, and I'm standing here at the Fairmont in Austin, and I can't wait to see you at Interconnect 2024. Interconnect is where the insurance restoration industry comes together to solve tomorrow's problems today. So come on down to Austin, make sure you have a seat at the table because we need your voice. There's not one group or company that can tackle these problems alone. It's all of us coming together to focus on the lives beyond the buildings. Register today and I'll see you in Austin. Okay, I want to look at both sides of that then. So let's take some of the, you know, really popular cities that that people often think of. We've got San Francisco, we've got New York City, we've got Seattle, these, you know, very high priced cities that people have moved out of. So what does the future look like for them? And how do you think they can adapt to some of these changes that have happened with, you know, people leaving their cities? It's not clear yet exactly how all the cards are going to fall, but, you know, those yeah. cities do remain attractive, right? We do see sure. particularly yeah. younger generation now coming back to the city. And, and those always okay. did tend to be cities that attracted more younger generations. You know, that was right. the yeah. sort of cradle of creativity and cradle of, you know, that's where you meet your next spot, you know, your spouse, your your partner, um, sure. you know, so, so. You know, so these cities are not going to be gone or or completely deteriorate, but I think their functions are going to change. So, you know, these commercial spaces that are now, be, you know, being largely vacant or not fully utilized are going to have to find other ways of filling the space, you know, and, and people sure, get creative. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think uh, what's going to end up happening is going to see more mixed use development. So instead of just having a an office building uh-huh. or, yep. you know, just a condo building, you get more uh, mixed use in, in one building and you will, sure. you know, eventually you end up getting more people on the road walking around and that, that yeah. spurs, uh, you know, local stores opening and and, and, and things like that. So, you know, so so those urban centers are going to have to reinvent themselves, basically, you sure, know, in, in order yeah. to attract people. But one thing that I think it's very important for them to reinvent themselves is to sort of deal with some of the issues uh, due to which people left in the first place. And uh, one of them yep. is, you know, we had a rise of homelessness. We had a rise in crime. Uh, theft, for yeah. example, you know, so so we are seeing definitely more crime in urban centers, you know, and that's not something new. I mean, back um, in 70s and 80s, when we had uh, the urban flight, right, when people were leaving uh, urban areas, uh, centers too, for more suburban areas, because of the rise in crime, you know, we had to address that to get people to come back. And we, and we did, actually, you know, uh, prior to the pandemic, urban centers were, were booming, you know, we saw so much new construction in urban centers. So, you know, basically, you know, there are issues that we need to deal with. And for cities that successfully deal with these issues, I think they're going to see people come back. So that's one important sure. thing. The other thing is, you know, we will see people um, keeping ties to these urban centers. So whether okay. that's through yep. living in suburban or even exurban area, exurban meanings, you know, beyond suburban. So like, 50 to 100 miles away from the urban center, but still being okay. able to commute that two days a week basis, right? Yeah. So so some people will do prefer that, while others will, will completely move to other metros. But still, you know, what we do see is that people that move, for example, from San Francisco, they move to areas where there is similar types of people and jobs, 
you know, yeah. so so they'll move to Austin, they will move to LA or San Diego, you know, they won't necessarily yeah. move to, I don't know, you know, St. Louis. <laughs> um, right. it's, it's yeah. same, same thing with people from, you know, New York, they tend to move to Philly or Miami, particularly Miami over the last few years, Miami has been booming as a result yeah. of migration from New York City. So the the ties between cities remain, right? Okay. Um, yeah. So, you know, so there's a lot there to still happen, but but we're already seeing sort of these these trends now develop. Okay, I've got, I got a couple things I want to ask you on that. So, but first, I, I do want to go to the other side of that. So, you know, what about for these smaller towns or, you know, more affordable metros that people ha- that have seen migration patterns and an influx of people? What are some of the opportunities that these new cities might be having? Well, I mean, the one really obvious one is that their wage wages increase because people of higher income are coming in, spending more on local services, which then increases the wages of local residents, you know. And mm. the other mm-hmm. thing is, you know, maybe proximity to these um, specialized skills enables local residents to sort of gain access to these high uh, income jobs as well that they would not sure. otherwise have because they were just, you know, so so far away from, from where those jobs are. So you over all can get an increase in uh, in income of a, of a metro area. Okay, that it triggers a big thought for me is what have home prices done both in you know cities like San Francisco and New York? If people are moving out of them, are the home prices still stable? Or are they dropping? And what has it done to these you know more affordable communities that are they still affordable now that people are moving to them? So like, can we talk kind of broadly about what it's done for home prices across the nation? Before we end this episode to talk about how interest rates have impacted migration patterns, let's take a break and talk about what's happening in the world of natural disasters. CoreLogic's Hazard HQ Command Central reports on natural catastrophes and extreme weather events across the world. A link to their coverage is in the show notes. In December, tornadoes and severe thunderstorms hit Tennessee and Kentucky. CoreLogic estimated that 10,345 single and multifamily homes in the areas affected by the storms have at least a 30% chance of tornadic damage. This late season tornado is partially due to the current phase of the El Nino Southern Oscillation or ENSO. El Nino phases coincide with a southeastern shift in the jet stream as well as increased precipitation in the southeast. Natural disasters play a pronounced role in the changing nature of the insurance, real estate, and mortgage lending markets. If you're curious to hear about what happened in the world of natural catastrophes in 2023 and what we can look forward to in 2024, get ready for an upcoming episode on Core Conversations, where we will invite back John Schneier, CoreLogic's Director of Catastrophe Response. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we've seen all of this really play out in home price data, you know. Um, so when, um, when you know, at, at the height of the pandemic, when people were you know, generally moving more. I mean, we've seen a yeah. little bit of a reduction in 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 a rate of um, mobility, but but uh, you know, at the height of the pandemic, all these metro areas where higher income people were moving to saw much stronger home price appreciation, and at the rate of like forty percent in Austin, for example, wow. you know, and and yeah. Boise City saw a similar rate of increase in home prices. So it did put pressure on home prices in these metros that were uh, receiving uh, new yeah. population, right? And that brings questions of you know 
sort of gentrification what what happens to people that can no longer afford in their own communities yeah. to buy yep. and what we ended up seeing there is they end up moving to even smaller towns or even you know you know towns that are more affordable or maybe um suburban uh, r- regions of these uh smaller metro areas i call them smaller they're not small at all <laughs> they're pretty large <laughs> metro areas but but you know yeah. in in, con- in comparison to new york city or san francisco for example so yeah. so we saw this cas- this cascading effect uh of you know of, of due to um migration during the pandemic and now we continue to see that uh, in many ways. So metro areas that are seeing a lot of incoming population um, and, you know, Miami, for example, still has the highest uh, rate of year over year appreciation in home prices. Uh, okay. But, you know, New York is actually catching up and, and Boston is and San Francisco is too, because home prices either, you know, slow to a halt or in some instances declined uh, over the last year. And that's, you know, we can talk about interest rates as well, how that, how you know, they impacted the uh, home price growth. But they have, um, in some metros, these large metros declined. Like we've seen okay. uh, Seattle and uh, San Francisco among the large metro areas top the list in terms of the overall decline in home prices. Now, San Francisco has caught up in many ways to okay. where was uh, prior to the declines, but Seattle, unfortunately, does remain, um, you know, with the relatively higher uh, difference between where it peaked and where it is right now. Uh, and Austin, Austin, too, in some ways, Austin just became sort of uh, victim of your own oh. success, you know, so it yeah. became so overly unaffordable uh, because that that now you know it just it's it's hard to keep up with that that those prices sure. in, in, in yeah. Austin yeah that is super interesting I mean Austin in particular really was a was a boom town and one that probably people didn't necessarily anticipate um, quite to the degree that it did happen so that that one was really interesting to see yeah but you know it does still remain a very uh you know it is still growing and it's growing mm-hmm. you know well so i was recently at, at a, an event where uh they were discussing their own uh housing policies and new construction and it was interesting for me to hear that because you know austin is one of the cities that has most new construction uh most the highest rate of new construction of of um, Interesting, but but they're still uh, fighting with housing shortages. You know, they still believe yeah. that they don't have enough housing because of so many people coming into the area, and wow. you know, consequent affordability challenges that 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 they have now. So, um, you know, even the that's that's the interesting thing. To, to me, is how many cities, despite having gained or lost population, still fight with the issue of shortage of housing because we have that issue across country, no matter where you go. Sure, that that is a really good point too, and that's really interesting. Um, one thing I do want us to dive into, um, maybe just to close here, Selma, is during the height of the pandemic, these migration rates were kind of the highest as as that we've seen them in history. Um, however, we also had historically low interest rates as well. So now that interest rates, and you and I have talked about this a lot on previous podcasts, and in particular the season finale last year, um, 
now that we've seen interest rates so much higher, has that is that correlated to people, the slowdown of people no longer maybe moving as much because they are locked into a very low interest rate? Or how is how have the interest rate fluctuation impacted the pandemic migration trends as well? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, high mortgage rates have brought uh, home sales to a halt, <laughs> particularly yeah. existing home sales. But when we look at mortgage application data and the share of applicants that are out of metro, they remain mm. at the same rate that they were during the pandemic. So about a quarter of um, applicants in the metro area are from out of metro. So um, I don't necessarily think that it wow. slowed uh, migration for these higher income folks. You know, I think yeah. the people that have limited budgets, they definitely are seeing, they are maybe sitting, uh, sitting still at the moment. Uh, but people that have, you know, a little bit more to spend and a little bit more flexibility and they wanted to move. And mind you, you know, they generally tend to move from more unaffordable area to more affordable area. So even sure, with yeah. the higher rates, you know, the impact is just, it, it's not as, as high. The other thing is, uh, is that we've seen increase in cash activity too. And in particularly in these areas that are more affordable or areas where we see a lot of in migration too, like Miami, for example, um, simply because um, people that are moving from higher cost areas tend to have more home equity build up. And when they sell their home, they have more cash to work with. So so they, sure. they tend yeah. to carry that over. So, uh, you know, so we, we do still see a lot of people moving. But unfortunately, overall home sales are really dampened by, by high, high mortgage rates. Well, Selma, I suspect this story is not over and uh, you will be back throughout the year of season four and we will continue our conversations on this. But, but thanks so much, Selma, for joining me today on our first episode of season four of Core Conversations, a CoreLogic podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, McLaren. I always enjoy having you here. And thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed our latest episode. Please remember to leave us a review and let us know your thoughts and subscribe wherever you get your podcast to be notified when new episodes are released. And thanks to the team for helping bring this podcast to life. Producer Jesse Devenins, editor and sound engineer Romeo Roman, our facts guru Erica Stanley, and social media duo Sarah Buck and Michaela Brooks. Tune in next time for another Core Conversation. You still there? Well, thanks for sticking around. Are you curious to know a little bit more about our guest today? Well, Selma Hep is CoreLogic's chief economist. Selma leads the economics team, which is responsible for analyzing, interpreting, and forecasting housing and economic trends in real estate, mortgage, and insurance. Selma frequently appears on local and national radio and television programs and has been widely quoted in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and many industry trade publications. She also regularly contributes to the CoreLogic Intelligence blog, where you can read her work at corelogic.com forward slash intelligence.